the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. The World Health Organization is calling air pollution the new tobacco. It believes the health impact of air pollutants on our health is just that serious and that widespread. That assertion is supported by a Harvard study showing one in every five deaths is caused by exposure to fossil fuel pollutants and that people of color and lower income are affected the most. In this episode of Challenge 2.0, we speak with a board member of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility to hear their diagnosis of the problem and their prescription for change. So this is a very important topic that is affecting all of us and to an increasing level. And we're very fortunate to have a guest with us who's very conversant with numerous aspects of this. And that is Dr. Chris Covert-Bolds, who's both a family physician and a member, board member, I think, of the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy to. Thanks for inviting me. It always helps as we begin to go into a topic in depth to get a sense of what attracted you, what motivated you. And so I might toss the question out first. What convinced you to go into medicine as a career? As a kid uh, growing up in Massachusetts, I, my dad was a doctor, an eye doctor, and I think that kind of sparked an interest in it. And I saw him, you know, feeling great about, you know, helping people, and I thought that combined science and helping people and the, you know, the magic of the human body, and so this kind of combined all of those. So after uh, majoring in French at Dartmouth uh, and doing the pre-med on the side, uh, I went into family medicine, went to University of Washington. I thought family medicine for me is the perfect balance of uh, having ongoing relationships with people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll help them get to through uh, health uh, crises and kind of getting on the other side and also being able to do procedural things that kind of keep the, the, both the mind and the hands occupied and, and keeps it interesting in a big variety. And as you uh, went into your practice of medicine, you were drawn to this area of participation in Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. How did that end up converging for you? When I got involved, uh, you know, as a student at, with Physicians for Social Responsibility to help try to prevent nuclear war, big threat that we can't just fix with, you know, seeing patients day to day, uh, that was a huge uh, uh, role that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And then when we moved uh, from Seattle up to Bellingham, I was less active, but we moved back. And then I got back involved with PSR, got involved with climate action, which I said is like the nuclear war that's already happening. As a, when I saw our son struggling to breathe as a young kid, I, mm -hmm. you know, it was super scary to see your child not able to breathe. Uh, and I really wanted to make sure that never happened to anybody else. So that's how I, how I got involved with the climate action part. Tell us a little bit about uh, the origins of PSR, Physicians for Social Responsibility. What year did it develop and how have you seen that grow in terms of participation of physicians and other health professionals? Sure. Uh, PSR is the U.S. affiliate of an international group called International Physicians for the Prevention mm -hmm. of Nuclear War, which started back in the Cold War days. And uh, it was a Russian, a Soviet and an American uh, doctor, both cardiologists actually, who joined together to try to prevent nuclear war, which was, you know, back then it was, you know, a very big threat between mm -hmm. the Soviet Union and Russia. 
Uh, and so they got involved that way and, you know, many years of a lot of actions to try to prevent nuclear war. And then we took on climate action as another big threat. And then uh, more recently, income inequality. And how have you seen participation in the group, uh, in the group change over the years? So I think, uh, you know, back a number of years ago, it kind of waned as uh, once the Soviet Union broke up. And I think uh, people's uh, sense of the threat of nuclear war dropped a bit. Uh, lately, with Ukraine and Russia saber-rattling, it's actually gone back up. Uh, and, but we may had made some progress, and I think people felt not as much threat, although uh, it's still currently present. Uh, and uh, me just being out of town, uh, my, my um, participation dropped off. But then again, when I moved back and could be more directly involved, and when I heard climate action was a second focus, that I said, that's where I really want to jump back in. As we're seeing more publication, both in terms of my field, meteorology and climate, and your field in terms of health and the impact of that, are you seeing uh, more attraction on health professionals to say, this is something we need to participate in? Yes, I think a lot of health professionals are seeing that it's really our responsibility to speak out on climate action because, uh, you know, we can treat our patients one by one, but to really have the bigger impact for the whole population, it really takes a much bigger level of of uh, involvement, which we can still see our patients and, and you know, tell them about the you know, things they can do for their, their own health and how they can help the bigger picture, but to take a bigger role in the more of the policy levels to make the bigger difference to, uh, you know, help all of the patients, even the ones we don't see. And we're going to talk about that, but what sort of uh, response do you get when you bring it up with a patient? I think everyone's pretty, uh, pretty on board. I mean, it's now it's it's hard to deny the uh, immediate realities of all the climate impacts uh, with the floods and heat waves and smoke and everything. So uh, I think people are pretty on board and uh, so it's more, you know, giving them something simple that uh, they can, you know, start doing and then kind of branch out from there. And I think people are very, uh, people are very responsive. Well, I was struck during the midst of the COVID pandemic, uh, which none of us can forget, nor do we want to, but the 200 different medical journals, I think it may have been more than 200 medical journals, came out in the midst of the pandemic and said the number one health threat is climate change. Uh, what was your impression uh, of that? And as a physician, what are some of the key uh, interrelationships between climate change, environmental degradation, pollution, and health then? So we know that uh, climate change is, the military calls it a threat multiplier. Mm -hmm. So all the you know, um, uh, poverty, uh, war, you know, w lack of water, uh, all of these things are just multiplied and lower income people and mm -hmm. people of color are more adversely affected than you know, other people. So it's just, um, just like COVID, it magnifies all the social inequalities that we already have and just brings them out more starkly. Um, and I think, uh, in some ways, we said, hey, when we really decide that there's something important that's a big threat like COVID, that we can really step up and do a lot, mm -hmm. uh, you know, almost like World War II, you know, we had to do it. And uh, we really, you know, if we really put our minds to it, we can do big things. And then the COVID was the modern, you know, example of that. Uh, and I think a lot of us said, you know, let's take that energy now and, and learn from that and, mm -hmm. you know, crank up our uh, response to climate change. During COVID, of course, we saw a lot of bad information coming out, a lot of denialism. Uh, did you learn some lessons from COVID that you're also beginning to apply in terms of the environmental issues and how they relate to health? I'd say especially the inequality part, just okay. the inequality magnifier. And that uh, 
we have to really uh, be aware that you know people have different uh, spheres of influence, mm -hmm. and we really need to you know try to reach people where they are and the, the sources of information that they listen to, mm -hmm. and really uh, target the information in a way that matters to them. Um, so for climate action, I say you know yes, it's you know it's a big thing, and, and some of it's irreversible. But there's huge things we can do to. And there, it's all stuff that we can do mm -hmm. once we make our put our mind to it. Uh, it's it's not too late, you know. We're not doomed, uh, so there is hope, and we absolutely can do it. And it's really deciding. How frequent have you seen that level of collaboration between that number of medical journals, all pinpointing one given issue? I don't think 200 medical journals have ever come out with a simultaneous uh, editorial on any topic ever. I I don't imagine. Uh, and it is the perfect, uh, you know, it affects everyone. We all mm -hmm. breathe the same air. We all live on the same planet. There is no planet B, as we say. You know, we don't have any spare planet to, to jump to. Uh, you know, and we're not going to move to Mars, uh, you know, the whole population. Uh, so uh, I think it really brought out that, you know, all health professionals and mm -hmm. everyone on Earth really has a, you know, is called to make sure our planet is livable. Has that level of collaboration continued? or even expanded since those editorials came out? Yeah, we're seeing more medical societies getting involved and, uh, you know, pediatricians leading the way, family doctors, uh, lung specialists, all the ones you would expect to be part of it, but even anesthesiologists realizing that the anesthesia gases they use, some have dramatically worse uh, greenhouse really? gas effects than others, and they can make a simple switch. There was one uh, presentation to one doc who you know, would drive his Prius to work every day and was very mindful of that, and they said, you know, the anesthesia gases you are using by choice, there's other ones that are just as effective, wow. just as safe, it's like you're driving a Mack truck, a diesel Mack truck to work every day with the greenhouse gas emissions, <laughs> with the gases you're using. And he immediately switched. Yeah. And so all the different professions are getting on board mm -hmm, and hospitals too. Now your group, honing in on your particular group, uh, you produced a video that pinpointed one local business and how their practices uh, and customs were really exacerbating this problem. And what I'd like to do before we get into their impact on climate change and health is just take a quick look at an introduction to that video. So let's just take a look at that. Hey, Amazon, it's time to deliver change. Transport is now the world's largest source of new greenhouse gas emissions, currently responsible for almost 12% of all emissions worldwide. Global carbon emissions of last mile delivery account for up to half of total delivery carbon emissions. In addition to creating carbon emissions that fuel climate change, the exhaust from delivery vans during last mile delivery is in our neighborhoods and in our lungs. What is the magnitude of the effect that all this new diesel pollution is going to have? Who is going to be affected? What diseases are you looking at from asthma, cardiovascular disease, diabetes and high blood pressure? All of these things, who is going to be affected? How many cases are you going to see from all these diesel vehicles that are going to be passing through neighborhoods? 69% of Amazon's warehouses are built in neighborhoods with a disproportionately high number of people of color and low-income residents. In order to meaningfully reduce last mile emissions and eliminate filling communities with exhaust, <coughs> Amazon and other delivery companies need to commit to zero emission deliveries by 2030. Chris, when your group chose that focus, what led them to make that particular choice and what sort of feedback did you get? 
So uh, Amazon and all the big companies in the world have the capacity to make dramatic, quick changes that we need to make to tackle climate change, to reduce their carbon emissions. It's not just buying carbon offsets and continuing to pollute. Right. They, could, they could do it. They have plenty of money. Uh, Jeff Bezos has plenty of money. And so they could, you know, they could shift very much quicker than they are mm -hmm. to electric vehicles, to, you know, dramatic. They make a lot of good statements, but they're not doing nearly as much as they need to be. Right. What's, do you ever hear anything back from Amazon directly? They haven't called me yet. I, I don't know why. <laughs> uh, no, uh, we haven't. Uh, and, you know, it, we're uh, small potatoes to them. But uh, I think uh, the more they hear it from more people, I think, you know, right. the mass, you know, voice uh, really makes the difference, I think. I have to ask the question, do you still get deliveries from them? So I am still boycotting Amazon, and they're still hurting really badly, I hear. Um, uh, my wife and son do, and we have that conversation. But I try to buy from the local uh, company, you know, local businesses wherever I can. Uh, I was stunned when I first heard of a Harvard study, and I think there were a couple of other institutions that were involved in that research, that said one in five deaths worldwide are caused by exposure to the pollutants released by the use of fossil fuels or the production and access of fossil fuels. Uh, what was your reaction? Does that, do you agree with that? Does that seem reasonable? I sure do. So it's just not as, uh, you know, it's not so obvious to people. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the heart attacks and, you know, strokes, they can happen from all these particulates from all this diesel and other smoke. Uh, the wildfire smoke, I uh, had a patient come in and he was short of breath and we thought, well, he, he inhaled a bunch of wildfire smoke, but he had no pre-existing lung disease. He had, his lungs were full of blood clots caused by wildfire smoke, small particulates. Really? You know, they talk about those 2.5 uh, yeah. particles. Those are the particles so small, they not only get into your lungs, but they absorb right into your uh, blood vessels mm -hmm. and they'll cause heart attacks, strokes, and blood clots. So, and of course it causes cancer and all these things. So we know it's a huge toll. So uh, there was a thing a while back saying, you know, what if we tackle climate change and it's a hoax and we, we have better health and cleaner air for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, that would be a shame. <laughs> so, so I said, of course, it's not a hoax, and we know there it'd be huge health impact improvements, mm -hmm. and you know, more jobs, and all sorts of things, that, all sorts of benefits from tackling climate change. What forms of cancer have been linked to wildfire smoke or air pollutants? So I'm uh, not totally uh, up to that, but I would guess with particulates in the lungs and a lot of the, you know, the smoke ones from fossil fuels are carcinogens. So I'm guessing that lung cancer would be one of them. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the kidney filters out, uh, you know, our entire bloodstream. So we know at least tobacco smoke causes uh, kidney cancer and bladder mm -hmm. cancer. So I, I don't know that off, off the top of my head, but... Uh, you know, we certainly know strokes, heart attacks, and, uh, uh, and uh, blood clots are directly related mm -hmm. to uh, bad air quality. And you brought up wildfire smoke, and of course that's very timely as we sit and talk today. Uh, last year, I remember coming home from a trip and uh, had been in some fairly major cities, but Seattle had the worst air quality compared anywhere in the world, I think, was compared to Beijing and New Delhi. Mm -hmm. And uh, that wasn't just a day or two. Uh, so maybe, and now we're seeing it this, this year, uh, maybe expand a little bit more in terms of what both short-term and long-term exposure did. You gave a few examples, but uh, as we see more wildfires, what is that doing to our health? 
Yeah, so we know short term, the best estimate I heard about 400 people in Washington died from the wildfire smoke. Wow. You know, there was maybe one, but that's the latest stat I heard. Mm -hmm. And of course, worldwide, it's enormous. Um, and finally, the East Coast uh, got a taste of what we've been dealing with for years and years when Washington, D.C. and New York, like, oh, this wildfire smoke is a real thing. It's not just those Westerners anymore. So yeah. uh, the plus side, I'm hoping that will uh, create a lot more urgency and action on it mm -hmm. because besides tackling uh, climate change, which we know the warming temperatures are drying out the forests right. and the beetles are, you know, surviving longer to kill the trees and this whole kind of uh, uh, cascading series of things, uh, we know that uh, what we've done in Washington State and learned from the Native Americans who's been telling us for centuries, right. you know, selectively thinning the forest and carefully doing uh, careful uh, selective burns to thin the forest and reduce all that fuel has a huge impact on reducing the, the giant wildfires uh, that hit us. So Washington State is making some progress on that and we're ramping it up and putting a lot of these you know, lumber people back to work mm -hmm. to help prevent these wildfires. So we know short term it's a huge thing, long term we know the these disease rates in cities, the mm -hmm. low income communities that are typically uh, you know near big highways and places that are producing you know uh, in the south uh, fossil fuel facilities you know refineries right. are typically closer to communities of color and lower income people because you know they have less power to prevent that uh, the huge uh, disease rates that you, you can track uh, people's life expectancy from where they from their zip code so yeah. south seattle has lower you know life expectancy than other areas dr directly due to the poor air quality and a lot of that originated with the old practice of redlining, and it just tended to snowball That's from, right. it's from the, there. The redlining still uh, you know, has that health impact. You mentioned you had a personal experience with this in terms of your son, I believe, having asthma. Uh, have we not seen increases in asthma as children are exposed to more of these pollutants? What sort of things are you seeing in the medical Yeah, absolutely. Asthma is getting more common. Uh, allergies and asthma have a huge overlap, so the allergy season is expanding and expanding mm -hmm. as these, uh, you know, plants, uh, you know, uh, leaf out earlier in the spring, so the ragweed and the pollens go up quicker. So a lot of overlap between allergies and asthma are affecting kids. And uh, we know older folks with the COPD, emphysema, bronchitis, they're having more of an impact. And again, the heart attacks and strokes uh, go up with the more bad air quality that we have. So yeah, we're seeing uh, worse air quality. And uh, we think that as we bring it back down, we should see those rates come back down too. Mm -hmm. And we've seen examples of that. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I have to ask you, as a physician, you're also a parent, and you're treating people uh, on a human level, what impact does that have on you? What sort of emotional tug does that have on you as you see that? Yeah, uh, you know, I hear people suffering uh, very frequently, if not every day. Uh, and uh, so some of, their some of the suffering is, uh, you know, amenable to some, you know, medications and things, mm -hmm. but the big picture is, you know, having to step, you know, step up and tackle these more systemic, large-scale things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it has a huge impact day to day. So for me, you know, getting out the guitar and singing some music, jumping on my bike, my little mini vacation twice a day and my bike commute really helps to kind of blow off that, you know, that absorbed suffering. And, uh, right. you know, you just hear people uh, with, you know, all sorts of health problems and you just, you just hear and see the suffering every day. And some of it's kind of self-inflicted, and a lot of it's just the the way the world is getting. Yeah. So, um, 
You know, so um, we say in WPSR that action is the antidote to despair, mm -hmm. or activism is the antidote to despair. So that's why I say, you know, stepping up and doing something that you can do in your daily life, be it at, you know, at home, family, community, or more policy levels, mm -hmm. uh, at least you're, you know you're doing something that's being effective. And I see on your tie you have uh, an emblem of your love of cycling, and I know, know of that. Uh, have you run into days like last October? We had some beautiful weather there, but uh, days where you say, it's just not suitable for me to cycle to work because of the air quality? Well, I got my N95 mask uh, that actually, they were in hard short supply. I was a patient of mine who's a building contractor that had better access to, you know, a giant crate of N95, so he actually uh, sold them to me for a dollar a mask. Uh, and uh, so I wear that all day long in the clinic to try to not get COVID, which I haven't gotten yet. Uh, and I would, when those, the air quality is really bad, I just rode with my N95 mask on. It's kind of stifling, but uh, you know, I only go about two miles now. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't bear to not do it, so. But I know as a, as a fact that you cycle much longer than that. Yeah, I do longer rides too. Chris, we talked about the Harvard study. Uh, is there some other research out there that maybe hasn't uh, received the same level of popular attention uh, that were as stunning as that? Yes, now we know that home uh, gas appliances, uh, stoves, uh, heating systems, um, cause up to 13%, that's one out of eight, of childhood asthma are from having your gas you know, appliances in your home. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we're poisoning ourselves with gas in homes. So uh, definitely make sure you've got it, you know, as tightened down and as, as good as it can be, ideally switch over to non-gas in the homes. And that's why here in Washington State, we've, uh, our state building council has mandated that all new construction be gas-free. Now they're challenging that in court, of course, but uh, we're one of the first states to pass a statewide, you know, electric building, uh, 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 ordinance statewide, so that should have a huge benefit. There's a study that shows that those gas, even though you don't smell it, they're leaking out even when you're not even having them right. turned on. And uh, it's like worse air quality indoors that would than would be legal outdoors. So some of our worst air quality is indoors from our own gas appliances. So, uh, so yeah, we need to, you know, sh ideally new construction, mm -hmm for lower-income folks to retrofit the old places, to have some government support and grants and uh, subsidies to allow, allow people to get off of gas uh, poisoning, um, and uh, you know, making that shift. When you were talking about the opposition to that, and we see that on virtually every level, uh, has your group undertaken to try to get in contact or engage in dialogue with some of these groups and say, just hear our viewpoint on that? Well, at the State Building Council uh, hearings uh, that, you know, we are all in the same Zoom room uh, listening to each other. That's true. And, uh, and so they heard our piece and uh, said, we're here for health. Uh, yeah. You know, you guys can make money either way. And actually, they can make money, you know, building either way. Now, if you're only doing gas, well, then, you know, at some point, you know, just like in years past, you know, the horse and buggy folks, you know, have taken a hit. Uh, you know, and the steam engines, uh, their manufacturers are, you know, not around anymore. We, you know, we changed our priorities. We mm -hmm. said, you know, the world needs to change. And, you know, fortunately, there's more than one job in the world. 
Uh, I don't, you know, make it a small point that, you know, for a gas manufacturer, you know, that's going to be, you know, a change. And right. fortunately, there's so many more jobs in clean energy and green and sustainable energy. That's the biggest source of new jobs. They're already way more than coal and, uh, you know, solar and wind power is way cheaper than fossil fuel power now. So, so things are changing for our better health. Um, the clock is always uh, a... a what shall I say, a detriment to conversations, but you've kindly agreed to go ahead and uh, continue this with us. So we're going to do a second episode. Before we say farewell to our viewers on this one, viewers and listeners, uh, the climate scientist E. Michael Mann, who is one of the great lights of climate science in the United States, he's from Penn State, has said that denialism used to be the biggest obstacle. And he now says doomism, a sense of doom, that we can't do anything is the biggest obstacle to really achieving change. What's your reaction to that? Do you have any wisdom you'd like to share with uh, people? So we can do it. It's not too late. We can tackle climate change. A friend of mine who passed away said, you know, we all need to fall in love again with the person or the place or the experience or nature that would be give us the strong enough motivation mm -hmm. to do what we need to do for a healthy climate for our children and grandchildren. Because when we're in love, we can do amazing things that we don't do otherwise. And he says, you know, what? what is that for you and each person that enables you to say, you know, I'm doing this, but I can do more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's that important. So uh, that's what I hold on to. Um, and, no, it's not too late. Uh, so I say, yes, you know, there's still hope. You know, some of it's baked in, as we say, mm -hmm. but we can absolutely, you know, avoid the worst effects of climate change. It's going to take all of us at the individual and the, the bigger policy level, but it's absolutely doable. So that's the good news. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Chris Covert-Bolds, uh, and again, join us in next week's edition of Challenge 2.0. We'll continue this conversation. We'll talk a little bit more about what are some of the steps that we can follow to make a change. Thank you again. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. If you've enjoyed this program, found our conversations to be informative, entertaining, and thought-provoking, and the vision inspiring of people from different backgrounds who can disagree without being disagreeable, perhaps you might consider supporting our program with a contribution. Your support will not only help our program continue, it will also support the broader efforts of Paths to Understanding, our supporting parent nonprofit organization.